you is everything in the rest of human history is actually contained in this book. There is nothing new in all of human history after you get outside of the first few chapters of Genesis. It's just a playing out over time of these genes. And so with that in mind, last week we began in the beginning. We discovered what we were created for, the beauty and love, the peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility of creation as it was described in, in the first two chapters of Genesis, pre the fall of man, how you were created to function. See, this is why reading Genesis 1 and under 2 and understanding how you were created, this is why many times you go through life and you just have this intuitive feeling that things are not the way they should be. I don't know if you've done that, if you've gone, if you've ever, something's happened, you've gone, man, it shouldn't be like this. I told you last week about my friend Dave who went to the doctor four weeks ago uh, with a cough and was told he had cancer and he died within four weeks. And so my family and I went to his funeral this week. He was a younger guy around my age. He was a younger guy. And uh, the line was wrapped around the place. It, it was, a, a, you know, probably an hour and a half to get in. And uh, and as I stood there and I, I I hugged his wife and I talked to his kids. I didn't know what to say other than there's just something inside of me that wanted to say, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be like this. Like we know it. And we know it because we were created for something else, to live in this harmonious and eternal relationship with God and others and self and creation. Jewish writers referred to this Harmony, this God-ordained web of relationships, is shalom. We talked about it last week. What our purpose was to be these image bearers of God, reflecting him back to one another and to the creation. What's interesting is, you, if, if you think about it, what undergirded this shalom is the same thing that undermined it. What permitted shalom was that it was God in our original creation who was determining for us what was good, what was bad, what was evil, what was, what was right, what was wrong. But as we saw in the garden last week, there lay for us an enemy who uses the same schemes today. The schemes never change. An enemy that convinced that man and still convinces you and I that God is restrictive, he's uncaring, he's unloving. That if we could just decide for ourselves how things should be, it would be better. I mean, he's, you know, God, he seems so old-fashioned, right? He doesn't understand things the way we do now. He's, he's, he's just kind of grumpy. He's, he's capricious. We're much smarter. We care more. And so because love demanded it, God permits in this story, man, the ability to decide to live in a relationship where God is God and, and, and decides for uh, all of us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, or we could choose for ourselves. And not to ruin the story, but most of you know how it went. We chose for ourselves. And thus laid the foundation of the fall, the root of all sin and pain and hurt and evil and death in the world, this desire to be like God, to determine what is good, what is right, and what is not. And we saw the results last week, how it all began to spiral very quickly. We began to hide from one another and from God. Uh, shame crept in. Blame was the result. And we found ourselves at the end of last week out of the garden, mercifully 
kept the punishment for sin is death, but there's this merciful peace of God, and we're going to talk about this again, this merciful peace of God that does not permit us into the garden again to eat of the tree of the fruit of life so that we are not eternal beings, we are no longer eternal beings, so that we don't have to live this way. Things will not always be this way. And so, we pick up the story. Adam and Eve find themselves uh, exactly the way they wanted to be. At least in some sense, they, they wanted to be like God and they got their wishes. The, the story picks up. I love how this picks up. This is so great. Genesis chapter 4, check this out. It says, uh, a little bit of a PG rating here, Adam made loves to his wife. This is why sometimes you can't read the Bible in church. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, firstborn son. And with the help of the Lord, she said, I have brought forth a man. This is great, okay? There's pretty good scholarly debate about this translation. Another version, which makes pretty good sense to me, given the situation that was at work, is this. Now, the man, uh, the man had marital relations with his wife, Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Then she said, I have created a man just as the Lord did. Right? Doesn't that make perfect sense? Like, look, I, I'm as good as he is. I can do it too. Why would I need to trust God? I've created a man, but Adam and Eve, they also realize something's changed. They're wearing clothes, they're hiding from God, they're hiding from one another, they've tasted the sting, the shame, the blame of the fall. They've started to see just a glimpse of what choosing to be God means for their world and themselves, how, how that pathway it begins to entangle and ensnare and, and it expands. And so the scripture says, later she gave birth to Cain's brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So you have this older brother Cain. Cain is essentially a farmer and you have Abel. Abel's a rancher and their work, the scripture would say, is not easy. They work hard. They're tasting the effects of the fall, the curse of the ground, the scripture says. Unlike in the garden where Shalom existed and the land kind of produced for man, with man, now the scripture says they're going to have to produce uh, fruit, uh, through, um, um, food through painful toil and sweat. And so the scripture goes on. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering, the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and in his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain, here's the understatement of eternity, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now let me give you a little background on this, because otherwise you might read it and go, well, that seems kind of random. It seems, again, kind of capricious. God just decides that he likes Abel, but he doesn't like Cain. But that's not what, what was going on. At first you'd look at it and you'd say, well, they both seem to be working hard. Uh, nobody seems to be just freeloading. Yeah, one's a farmer, one's a rancher. One brings an animal for sacrifice, which was the fruit of his labor. That makes sense. And the other one brings uh, fruit, uh, which was the fruit of his labor. And they both come, and they're both kind of religious. They're both doing God's will. They're both seeking God. So what's the problem? Because all we're told is that God blessed and showed favor to Abel, probably meaning he prospered him and made him successful. Things went well in his life. But Cain, not so much. Why? The first clue is this. It, it says, quote, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. 
But Abel brought fat portions, those were the best portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, if you're a rancher, track with me here, if you're a rancher, every year your income is determined by how many more calves and lambs are being born. Now, if you want to play it safe, this is what we do, okay? This is, this is our origins, okay? If you want to play it safe, make sure you have enough, right? You got to make, got to make sure I got to provide for myself. You wait and give to the Lord his offering after you see how many animals are being born. If you're going to have 12 animals, right, then it's like, oh, sure, Lord, here's one or two. You know, here's my tithe. Heck, I'll give you three, right? And then you'll be even more pleased with me. But here's the danger, though. What if you give to God the first one that's born, and there's only two born that year? Well, that seems kind of exorbitant. You should probably hold back and wait to see how things go. Need to, need to take care of myself first. Need to kind of make sure nothing bad is going to happen to me first, and then I'll give to God what I have left, because this way I can, in a sense... Be, see, being your own God is not just theoretical. It's practical in how we live. I need to take care of myself first. This way I can be my own God. There's a different kind of person, though. An able kind of person who, who has this open-heartedness and this trust in God. There's a different kind of spirit in able, a different level of commitment and joy and freedom, and you don't see it in Cain. You ever wondered why, in a sense, the exact same set of circumstances, Abel, Cain and Abel, same parents, uh, what allowed Abel to sacrifice the best and first of what he had, and why did Cain hold back? What, undermined, what was undergirding that? Where did that story come from? How come Abel was able to do it? Well, in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews, in a book called Hebrews, explains it to the Hebrews. He says this, by faith. We understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen wasn't made out of what was visible. In a sense, he says, by faith we believe Genesis 1 and 2. Then he says, so, uh, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Abel was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, he still speaks to you and I, even though he's dead. Abel trusts in God, believes that God is going to take care of him. This is very simple. Abel's faith still speaks to you and I today. It's strong enough in a very real sense that it restores what had been stolen from God, and Abel steps off of the throne of his life, permits God access to being his God again. See, this is, I hate, you know, this is not a tithing talk or anything like that, but this is why we give in church and we give sacrificially our first, our best, not because God needs it, but because it honors him, restores him, puts him back in charge of our lives, and, and builds within us a trust and a faith that allows God to be God and helps us to let go of the control factor of, of scheming, and believing that we know better and we have to take care of ourselves. I've got to hold back from God. I've got to get ahead of others. I'm on my own. No one is going to take care of me the way I can take care of myself. All of that comes when we start believing that God can't be trusted. So, so the story goes on. The Lord said to Cain, why, why are you angry? 
why is your face so downcast? Now here's interesting. He goes, if you do what is right, won't, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right. If you do what is right. Let me take you back to last week and, and let me ask you this question. Who determines what's right? Who gets to decide what's right? Because Cain was doing what he deemed to be right. Cain was doing what makes perfect sense, right? It makes perfect sense. Let me just wait and see. The issue is always the same in our origin. God is saying to Cain, look, allow me to be God. Allow me to determine for you going forward from this moment, right and wrong, good and evil, follow my ways, and it'll go well for you. There's, there's a subtlety to this story I just want to introduce you to as we kind of just brush by it. If you're here over Christmas, we talk about Isaiah's four-part prophecy where he talked about um, th this Messiah that would come and he would be these, have these different characteristics. And one of them was that it would be a wonderful counselor. And you begin to see God in that role, maybe as clear as ever right here in, in the first four chapters of Genesis. Maybe you grew up with an understanding of God that he's just up there waiting to get you just waiting for you to screw up, and then he's gonna, then he's just gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, has a big stick. And, and check this out. Look at King. He screws up, but what does God do? God doesn't stay up in heaven waiting for Cain to realize he messed up and come to him. No, no, he, he leaves and comes to Cain. It says, the scripture says Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. That's a Semitic way of talking about depression. So you have this, this man here who is struggling, all pent up in his sin and brokenness. But you don't have God up in heaven just tapping his foot, going, I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder if he's going to listen. I wonder if he's going to come through. Mm. Now, he comes to Cain and he comes... He doesn't show up and say, how dare you question me over this? Do you know who I am? I mean, that's the way I would come. Instead, he comes with questions and he says, what right do you have to be angry? Excuse me, he doesn't say, what right do you have to be angry? He comes and he goes, why are you angry? Why, is your, why, is your, why are you crestfallen? Why are you downfallen? He doesn't jump at him and goes, he doesn't jump and go, Cain, do right. It's said before he gets the idea of doing right, he says, look, first of all, I want to get underneath with you. I want to look at the motives of your heart, why you're angry, why you're upset. I want to get behind these things. And it's this beautiful first glimpse of who this wonderful counselor is. And he's more concerned, catch this, he's more concerned about the state of your heart than he is the state of your offering. Now, i got to introduce you to one of the most prophetic statements in all of the Bible, and perhaps the scariest. So scary, I don't really like preaching about it or talking about it, because it keeps me awake at night. I don't like it. But if you live long enough, you start to get a feeling about life, even before you read this scripture. And you know it, okay? I know you know it. You know how when life is going good, things are just kind of happening, everything's good, right? Job's good, family's good, marriage good, health good. What's in the back of your mind? It's only a matter of time now, right? It's only a matter of time now. Something's coming. The shoe's going to drop. We've even come up with a name for it. We don't even call it a name. We're so sure about this, we call it a law. Murphy's Law, right? Imagine hanging out with Murphy. 
right? I mean, he must have been the most miserable guy. He's not the guy you want to be at a party with. And Murphy's the guy that came up with the classic line, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. The classic example of Murphy's Law, if you drop a piece, piece of toast, it always falls, buttered side, right? There. But here's what I want you to think about. What if there was a law at work in our lives, but it wasn't out there, it was in here, about why things do, and our experience shows us this, if you live long enough, you know this is true, why do things seem to quickly move from bad to worse? There's a law, something's going on. It is outside in the world, but more importantly, there's something going on inside of us, the scripture says. Here's what God says to Cain. He comes and he goes, but if you do, it, if you do not do what is right, if you do not allow me to be God, to determine for you and for your benefit and for your good and for your peace and for your prosperity, if you do not do what is right, as I call what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have, it desires to have, but you must rule over The ESV translated it this way, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is contrary to you. You think that doing whatever you want, being your own God, trusting in yourself, providing for yourself, you think that that's going to bring you everything you want, but it's not. I love how the scripture talks about sin here. We think of sin as like, I said a bad word, or you know, I, 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 I stole a pen at the bank, right? The scripture describes sin in a different fashion here. It says that sin is almost like it's, it's, it, it's alive, it's animated, it, it has a will, and that will is not for you. There is something at work in you that is not for you. Let me say it again, this is the big truth of scripture. There is something at work in you that is not for you. It's predatory. It has this deadly life of its own. God is saying that sin has this abiding, growing presence in your life. Come on, guys, you know this, right? When you commit sin... Sin isn't over. It doesn't stay put. It's not just an action. It's a force and a power, and it hides really well. Sin crouches, right? It kind of stays over in the corner. Sin does a really good job telling you it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Now, Tim Keller talked about how sin hides. I like how he talks about it in the 21st century. He points out that one way it hides is intellectually. The very word sin, right? When's the last time somebody talked about sin? I know, maybe you brought your friend today and your friend is going, I thought this was a cool kind of contemporary church and this guy's up here talking about sin, right? I get it. You know, I don't want to hear about it. I told you, I don't like hearing about it myself. Why? Which, of course, goes exactly to what he said. It's crouching, right? It's just ready to spring, right? But I'm not talking about stealing pens and saying bad words. I'm talking about a force that's at work in your life. But I know in the 20th century, it hides. And in the 21st century, now it hides intellectually. It just sounds so primitive. C.S. Lewis, right? Everybody loves C.S. Lewis. He nails this in his book, Mere Christianity. Stick with me. It's a little bit hard to understand, but stick with me because I think it's going to help. 
He says, this explains what always used to puzzle me about Christian writers. They seem to be so strict at one moment and free and easy the other. They talk about mere sins of thought, as if they were immensely important. But then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries, as if all you've got to do is repent and be forgiven. But I've come to see, Lewis said, that they're right. What they're always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self which no one sees, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands. Another so placed that however angry he gets, his, sin will only be, his anger will only be laughed at. Lewis is saying, look, there's two kinds of people. They both get angry, one of them because of his conditions, his power. He, he kills people with the anger. The other person, no matter how angry he gets, people just laugh at him. But each of them is doing damage to their soul. He goes on. Each has done something to himself, which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him. Think, I, you know this is true in your personal life, right? And I could go through all kinds of different sins up here. You know, the first time it was a big deal. Second time it's not that hard. The third time you don't even know anymore. But it's leaving marks on your soul. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he's tempted. And will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, he could have the twist in his central man straightened out again. But in the long run, he's doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not really what matters. This is why Jesus always speaks of the heart when he's talking about sin. There's another place in mere Christianity where Lewis makes this interesting observation that first the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them, but then after a while they hated the Jews because they had killed them. The point being this, when you sin, the sin doesn't just go away. The sin becomes an animate presence in your life. You start by doing sin, but then sin does you. Hannah Arendt uh, put it this way. She was Jewish, and she went to Adolf Eichmann's trial. She wanted to see with her own eyes somebody that could be capable of these atrocities up close. And so she went during the trial, and she came to a conclusion that she wrote about, which got plastered all over the world in an essay called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Here's what she wrote in the essay that became picked up and written all over the place. She said, you know what? He looks ordinary. He looks just like us. He doesn't look evil. Do you know what that means? He's just like us. The way sin crouches down intellectually for most of us is that when we see somebody like the Nazis, right, we go, oh, we can never be like that. We can be that arrogant. We're not capable of that delusion, of, of that kind of pride. We can never be that violent or cruel. Hannah Arendt says, why not? She says, we're just like them. They're just like us. We must be capable of it. Of course we're capable of it, she said. This is an interesting conclusion. She goes, if they are sub-people and we treat them that way, that's exactly what they did to the Jews. If we don't treat them as sub-people, then we have to admit we're capable of it too. Some of you could come up here and you could tell the stories about sin and it, it, it just crouching and pouncing. I know, that, I mean, I do a lot of counseling. I mean, you know. I can hear it. I can hear the story. So, you know, it was just a business trip with a colleague. We were just going to have a drink at the hotel bar. And 
then it wasn't. You know, I was just, I was just going to take a quick look. I was just doing some his, you know, some, some checking something out. Just a quick look. Just, it was just going to be a sip, one smoke, one time. But then it wasn't. I'll give you one, okay? All of us, at one time or another, if you're in any kind of relationship, have, let's just put it nicely, bent the truth. Remember the first time you kind of bent the truth to your spouse? Remember, see, it kind of bothered you, felt kind of bad about it. Now it just rolls right out, doesn't it? It's quite easy. Comes very easy. So interesting, right? Like, think about Adam and Eve. This is fascinating, okay? Stick with me. It's so good. This stuff is so great. It's terrible, but it's, it's so fascinating. Adam and Eve, right, their desire for sin was, it came from an external source. There was an external factor, an outside enemy. But with Cain, and in the world you and I now occupy, sin no longer needs to be compelled from the outside because just let Cain, the compulsion towards sin now comes from me. There's something in me that's doing it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out in the field, big boy. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I think we've gotten so used to this story that we've, it doesn't bother us. We don't get a sense of the horror, especially in a world that was so close to perfection. We had just been in Eden like not a long time ago. I remember what it was like. At least they did. And so I just, so you get a sense for the, the horrific nature of what was being experienced by, by our forebears. Here's a picture by Peter Paul Rubens in 1600, um, Cain slaying his brother. And you just see the violence, the anger. You see Abel's face, the terror. And then a picture that's really been haunting me from 1888, the first, it's called The First Morning. It's a picture of Adam and Eve with Abel. And you see Eve, you know, first they're covered, right? Like in the grayness of where they are. Eve can't bear to look, and Adam is holding his heart. I mean, sin doesn't number on us, man. So the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied. By the way, if God ever comes asking you any questions, just remember he already knows these answers. He's so stupid, right? Like, I don't know. Um, and he's got this attitude, right? Am I my brother's keeper? If you think about this story, in the story of Cain, you have the first crime, the first opportunity for vengeance. You have the first act after the fall. You have the, uh, you have the first sacrifice, the first expression of hypocrisy, the first occasion of false religion, the first act of self-righteousness. And you have a picture, a picture of what is possible for each and every one of us when this decision to be our own gods, to determine good and evil for ourselves, when it comes into full bloom, what can happen to any one of us and does happen to each of us internally. G.K. Chesterton, who was this, this um, thinker, 
He, he, there, there was an article that came out in a newspaper, and they were asking all the great thinkers to, to write a, a response. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? Anybody ever see Chesterton's response? He, he wrote it back. It's really pretty funny. He just wrote it back, a, a little thing. It says, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. I, I got this issue. The New Testament writer, John, he said this way. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. I, this, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the worlds hate you. Let me, let me give you the KISS principle of this morning's sermon. If you want to keep it simple, stupid. Well, I don't mean stupid for you. I mean for me. If you just want to keep it simple, go home. Here's what you say to yourself driving home. Do not be like Cain. Don't be like this. Now remember, on the surface, Cain and Abel look pretty much the same, right? They're both hardworking. They both, in a sense, go to church. They both believe in God. They're trying to do God's will. But there's something fundamentally different at the trust level of their heart. Who are they trusting to be God? Don't be like Cain. Who, who, who do they believe has the right to, to, to lay out what is good and right and evil and wrong? Are they looking to other things for their lives and their salvation, or are they looking to God? This is what makes the difference, guys. Whether you're going to be in this life grumpy, angry, furious, frustrated, fearful, anxious, worried, cane types, always upset, somebody's always getting ahead of you, somebody's always stealing from you, somebody's always robbing from you, you're always competing, you're always looking at the ables around you, oh, why is that guy ahead of me? They don't deserve to be ahead of me. I'm not getting mine. I mean, you, you want to be like Cain? Because I tell you, there's a lot of Cain's around. Or you want to be like Abel. You see, Cain's hate Abel's. I mean, I sense the Cain in me because I have some Abel's I'm not a big fan of. Abel's don't hate Cain's. Abel's eyes, minds, their hearts, they're focused on God. They're trusting in God. They're not worried about themselves. Cain's denounced. Cain's demonized. Cain's are always comparing. They're always frustrated. They're always filled with fear. And so it always goes back to this same root origin who are you trusting to be God? Where is your heart's fundamental trust? Don't be like Cain. But God doesn't leave Cain here. There's such a beauty at the end of this story. And if you've grown up in the church, usually we just leave it there. Don't be like Cain. You know, but, but there's something more incredible at work. God doesn't leave Adam and Eve in that scene. He, he comes and he, he says this. The Lord said to Cain, what have you done? Listen. He, he literally means listen. Listen. He says, your brother's blood, it cries out to me from the ground. Scripture uses that term a lot, the, the blood of, of injustice crying from the ground. And what is it crying for? It's crying for justice. God's saying, your brother's blood, it's crying out for justice. Do you hear it? I hear it. He goes, look, now you're under a curse and you're driven from this ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now you're going to work the ground. It's no longer going to yield its crops for you. You're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Here's what I love. Cain said to the Lord, this isn't fair. Right? 
Anybody have any teenagers? My punishment is more than I can bear. I need that cell phone. Because you're driving me from the land. I'm going to be hidden from your presence. See what sin does? Sin hides. Sin separates. I'm going to be separated from your presence. I'm going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. Now, is there any sense of repentance here? None. This is your kid after telling you, after you take the cell phone for one week, saying, well, this is ridiculous, unfair. You're, to you're a total jerk. You're unfair. This is where I, you know what I respond with? Fine, now it's two. This is what I do. See, thank God I'm not God. You'd really be measured. I, you really would. You'd all be in big trouble if I was. But this is not what God does. Because God is this perfect balance of of justice because he hears he hears the ground he hears the blood of Abel crying for justice but he's this God of crazy mercy that makes no sense the Lord said to him not so anyone who kills Cain is going to suffer vengeance seven times over and he puts a mark on Cain so that nobody who finds him would kill him and so Cain went out of the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of even Eden. you know it's so interesting if you spend any time on this everybody's always trying to figure out what's the mark I wonder what the mark was how do you get the mark I think we spend way too much time worrying about the mark because you missed the point. Here's the point. God's concern for justice for the innocent is matched only by one other thing, his care for the sinner. Even this silly prayer of Cain, it has this germ of an appeal and God answers it and, and marks him. It's not a stigma, the mark, but it's for safe passage. It's God saying, I'm going to protect you. It's the mercy, church, you've got to hear this now. This is a story of mercy even for the unrepentant. God is just not, he's not only concerned for the, in, for the innocent. God is merciful on the unrepentant. God cares for people who don't listen to him. That's crazy. And if God is merciful to Cain, who shows no repentance, if God doesn't give up on Cain and is protecting him if he cares that much, what does it mean for you? Whatever you've done. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're at least a little repentant, you're a little sorry, you're way ahead of Cain. And he cares for Cain. What does he think of you? But there's this issue of justice. What about the blood crying out for the ground? How is God going to settle this? Something needs to be done to make this right. One writer summed up the justice thing this way. This is so good. He said, years later, another man showed up who too was a lot like Abel because he came into a world, he came into a nation that was filled with canes. People who were religiously very observant, who were always bringing their offerings, honoring the sacrificial system, and yet they hated him. They hated his spirit, and they killed him. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus Christ shed his blood, an innocent victim of injustice, did you know Jesus' blood cries out too? But it cries out in a new way. Check this out. The writer to Hebrews says to those who choose to follow Jesus, this is such an incredible verse. I don't know if you ever caught it before. He goes, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Jesus, this ultimate Abel, 
the only truly innocent person that's come into the world. He is unlike Cain. He's loving. He's trusting in God. The Cains couldn't stand it. They killed him. Yes, he dies a victim of injustice, but he also dies by design in your place to pay the penalty for our injustice. What does all that theology mean? Listen, if you're a sinner like me, this is really great news. Because I, maybe if you're a sinner like Paul, Paul says, right, why is it the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing the things I do want to do, I never get to. You know the thing that you keep that besetting sin that you keep going to God with and you keep going, uh, God, please forgive me, please forgive me, please. And you keep hoping and eventually you start to go, have you ever gotten to the place where you've said, God, forgive me, like the millionth time and you're like, there's no way he could possibly still be forgiving me. Like there's just no way. That's because you think that your appeal to God is based on his mercy, but it is not. It's a, there, is a, there is something going on here with justice. In a sense, Jesus stands before the throne of God Jesus' blood, like all innocent blood, is crying out for justice. But here's what Jesus' blood cries out for. It says, Father, your law demands justice. These people have sinned. The wages of sin is death. But for these people who believe in me, I have paid it. This is my blood crying out for justice. But justice demands that you not condemn them. Why? Because that would be two payments, two lives for the same sin, and that would be unjust. First John, famous verse, we say it all the time. I want you to understand it differently. First John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and what? Merciful to forgive your sins? Just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. It says he's faithful and just. It means that Jesus isn't standing before God, interceding, saying, God, I know they did it again, but please have mercy, please have mercy. The blood of Jesus cries out for justice. The justice is not against us. The blood spilled on the ground at the foot of the cross cries out for justice, but it is justice that is for you. I'm going to have the band come up, but man, if you could get that. I mean, when you start to... You start to understand who you are, this force that's at work in you, constantly rebelling against God. When you start to understand, a little like Abel did, the depth of your sin and the greatness of God, his love and his justice and his mercy, it's really hard to be like Cain. When that starts to happen, when you become so secure in his love... You're not going to be angry because somebody's getting ahead of you. Your identity isn't going to be based on what you're doing anymore. When you are like Abel, there will be security and peace. Listen, I, I want you to understand, this is very important when you go home. I want you to think about this. The world needs some Abels. The world is full of Cain's. They're everywhere your family, your home, our town, this church, we need a lot more Abel's. The Cain's are killing each other. The Cain's are exploiting each other. The Cain's are lying to each other, cheating on each other, elbowing each other out. They're miserable as can be. Sin has, has become their master. But you can be different. Through faith, by faith, because of faith. You can be like it. Allowing God to be God. Trusting in his goodness.
allowing for him to define for you what is good and evil and right and wrong. There's plenty of Cain's out there. The world needs a few more evils. Do not be like him.